Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Dave Noyce and I oversee our faith coverage. I'm joined again by senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Mormon voters used to be more evenly split between the two major political parties. Even supporting Democrats Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Lyndon Johnson for U.S. president. But something happened in the 1960s. Latter-day Saints began moving to the right and eventually became a reliably Republican voting bloc, a trend that continues to this day. Though there were many social factors behind this shift, one high-placed leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints may have helped shape Mormon political views for decades. His name? Ezra Taft Benson. Matthew Harris, author of Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right, and a history professor at Colorado State University in Pueblo, joins us today via Zoom to talk about Benson. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Dave. We're glad you're with us. So for our leaders, readers who don't, and, and listeners who don't know much about Benson, could you give just a brief overview about his life, where he, where, he, where he started, what he did in the church, what he did in the government, that kind of thing. Yeah. So Benson is, Ezra Taft Benson was both a political and religious leader. He was uh, an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he later became the church president. He also, in the 1950s, was a, the secretary of agriculture in the Dwight Eisenhower administration. So he's the first Latter-day Saint uh, apostle to serve in the presidential cabinet. And uh, lastly, um, Benson was one of the most significant conservative voices in national politics in the uh, post-decades after World War II. So he's an incredibly uh, significant person. What were Latter-day Saint politics like before Benson? Well, uh, um, Latter-day Saints were Democrats. They were Republicans. Um, they were always conservative, typically. Um, although they supported the New Deal during the Franklin Roosevelt administration, much to the chagrin of church president Heber J. Grant and his counselors, particularly J. Reuben Clark. Um, but Latter-day Saints were probably a little bit more independent-minded back in those days than perhaps they are today politically. So what, what in your book you describe three events or three experiences that shaped or had a profound impact on Benson's views. Can you tell us what those were? Sure. So the first one is Benson was called as an LDS apostle in 1943. And within two years of his call um, as an apostle, he was called by the first presidency to a special mission in war-torn Europe. So he went to Europe with a traveling companion. I think um, his name was Frederick Babel. He was probably oh, 30 or 31 at the time, and Benson was a little bit older. And Benson and Babel went to war-torn Europe to meet the needs of Latter-day Saints to make sure that they were getting the food and uh, clothing supplies that, that they had needed since the war had ravaged much of their infrastructure there. And so Benson went there, and he met with Latter-day Saints, and he writes in his journal about what a moving moment this is, in which he comes across not just Latter-day Saints stricken by the war, but also Europeans who were emaciated, they were hungry, they, they lacked proper clothing and housing. And it was just profoundly moving to him to see these people. Also visited the concentration camps, several concentration camps throughout Eastern Europe, and that was moving to him. And he sermonized about this experience later, um, in which he blamed totalitarian regimes, fascist and Nazi regimes, 
for creating this incredible destruction on these people. So that was the first influence that Benson experienced that really got him thinking about, as he put it, the evils of government or big government. And the second one was he um, became involved or was invited to join uh, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, cabinet as his secretary of agriculture. And um, Benson had been a prominent member of the National Farmers Cooperative prior to his call in the, in the cabinet. So he really was a prominent um, farmer at that point. And Benson had uh, learned from his eight years in Washington how difficult it was to be an ideologue. There are so many special interests with farming. There are um, compromises that need to be made. And one of the things that Benson was called to do was to scale back agricultural subsidies that had begun during the Franklin Roosevelt administration and that had carried through with Harry Truman. And so needless to say, you can imagine what it would have been like if you're a farmer living in say Cache Valley, uh, Utah, and you're told that your subsidies are gonna be cut in half because of a member of your church. And um, so farmers, not just Latter-day Saint farmers, but other farmers were not happy about this. But in Benson's view, it was socialized uh, agriculture and he thought that this was wrong. And the third thing that influenced him was his association with what's called the John Birch Society, which was, in those days, it was the most extreme anti-communist organization in the United States. And I'll just say uh, briefly about the Birch Society. It started in 1958 with a man named Robert Welch, who's famous for the caramel lollipop, uh, or sugar daddy, I guess is what it's called. Do people eat sugar daddies today? I don't even know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But anyway, so Robert Welsh founded the Sugar Daddy, and it made him millions. He retired from the candy business, a wealthy man, and that's when he started the John Burt Society, which is named after a fallen soldier uh, from World War II. And um, Secretary Benson uh, first became aware of the Birch Society in 1961 when he left his government service after his second uh, tenure. And it became this incredibly riveting moment for him because the John Birch Society, they had put a tone to some of the things that he was experiencing in Washington. For example, Benson had always thought that there were secret communists within the government. And there's something important to know about this. This is the Red Scare. Uh, Benson is in Washington during Joseph McCarthy, where there are communists everywhere. And, and the truth is, there were some communists in the government. Um, Alger Hiss was a member of the Agricultural Department in the 1930s. And he was arrested um, for selling secrets to the Soviets. He denied it, but the evidence today suggests that he certainly was on uh, Soviet payroll. So there were some uh, communists, and Benson was acutely aware of that. So he became associated with the Birch Society, and uh, the Birchers were outside of the mainstream of American politics. And their most egregious claim that they had made was uh, they, Robert Welch had accused Dwight Eisenhower of being a communist. Now just imagine that for a moment. Let that sit in. He's a five-star <laughs> general. <laughs> Benson had served with him for eight years and Eisenhower always stuck up for Benson. And how does Benson repay him? He calls him a communist. So one of the things I I looked at my research in my book is how Eisenhower responded to that because it does get back to him that his former secretary calls him a communist and was also 
uh, affiliated with the John Birch Society. So the Birch Society was probably the third most important thing in Benson's life because it, it, it really, um, it pushes him to the fringes of mainstream American politics. And that, that, I think that's really an extraordinary moment. Did he actually join the Birch Society, Matt? Yeah, so a lot of people, a lot of Latter-day Saints, uh, for example, they'll, they'll, they'll frequently say that, because Benson said it. Well, I'm not a member, but, and then he gives them the Birch line. Well, the important thing is, is that he wanted to be a member. He wanted to join their board. Robert Welch had actually flown to uh, Salt Lake in 1967 to beg the aging church president, David O. McKay, let this Benson, Ezra Todd Benson, let him join our board. And McKay said, no way, because it was too controversial. So the short answer is, is that he wanted to be a member of the Birch Society, but the church president said no. But Benson's family, they all joined. Did, did he ever think about quit being an apostle? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, <laughs> so I have, I have, his, uh, I have his, his letters to, from the Birch Society. This is a restricted collection in the Birch Archives in Appleton, Wisconsin. And so I have access to this entire collection. And it's amazing to me to read their correspondence, which is Dear Bob and Dear Ezra. And, you know, I'm going to be flippant for just a quick moment, but reading these letters, one wonders if Elder Benson ever did any church work, because he, he was just consumed by politics. In order to understand this, this uh, why he was consumed, I think it's important to go back just for a brief moment, that when he was invited to join President-elect Eisenhower's cabinet in November of 1953, um, then Apostle Benson had to get word or permission from President McKay, and President McKay gave him his blessing, both literally and figuratively. Before um, Benson left for Washington, the church president, along with his counsel, Reuben Clark, had given him a special blessing in which uh, McKay urged Benson to guard against communism, socialism, and big government. So this special blessing from the church president, a man whom Benson greatly admired, it gave him his marching orders for the rest of his life, not just in the cabinet, but also for the rest of his life. And when Elder Benson got associated in these anti-communist groups like the Birch Society, um, he really felt like it was, this was his, his calling as an apostle to really warn the church. And this is why you see in his sermons and his writings, there are so many uh, Benson sermons that have the word watchman or warn in the title. And this is derivative of that special blessing that he uh, received from the church president in 1953. So I was going to ask you about that. How, how did he bring his politics into the pulpit? Um, and how did... How did members respond? How did other apostles respond to it? Did he give talks on politics at General Conference? Yeah. So uh, the, the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Ben said his biographer, uh, a man named Francis Gibbons, wrote a, a biography on Benson. And Gibbons is an interesting biographer because he was also Ezra Taft Benson's personal secretary. And Gibbons, not just to Benson, but to other church presidents as well. And Gibbons had uh, made an interesting observation in this biography. He said that Benson gave hundreds of talks during the 1960s on, quote, the freedom issue. 
that was always an euphemism for communism, socialism, and liberalism. Now, the freedom issue. And so for Elder Benson, um, he said something interesting that I think characterizes how he viewed politics and religion. He said, quote, that they are all one big great ball of wax. He didn't separate the two. His religion was his politics and his politics, you know, was his religion. And needless to say, the church body was divided over a lot of this. Um, I would say certainly he had more supporters than not. But there was a vocal, vocal minority in the 60s and into the 70s and into his church presidency into the 80s that vigorously pushed back on Elder Benson trying to align the Birch Society with the LDS church. And there were um, Hubie Brown, who was a Democrat, was his biggest opponent or critic, I, I suppose. Um, in 1963, when the church, when the first presidency sent Elder Benson to Germany on a special mission, the reason they gave was that that's where the church needs him, is to look over the mission in, in Western Europe. The truth is they got him out of the country because he wouldn't give up the John Burt's line. And when he left, um, Hubie Brown said, quote, I hope he leaves and never comes back. And he said this privately, but really I can't under, I can't emphasize enough how much, um, difficulty that his aligning the birth society with the church caused the church because Latter-day Saints would write the church, the first presidency letters and letters and letters, David O. McKay, Hugh Brown, they have thick files from disgruntled Latter-day Saints um, who complained about, they would say something like, Elder Benson visited our state conference last weekend. All he talked about was the Supreme Court and the president being communists. We are so offended. And David O. McKay, who's a conservative Republican and probably more aligned with Benson's politics than anybody in the high church leadership, even he recognized that this is a problem. And of course, Hugh Brown and Henry Moyle, uh, the other counselor in the first presidency at the time, he was all, Moyle was also a Democrat. They, they just thought this was just the worst thing possible for the church. And they also criticized uh, Benson, um, both Moyle and Brown, when Benson and his son Reed, who was a member of the John Birch Society as a regional director, so he, this is his job, his career, um, they were highly critical of both Reed Benson and Cleon Skousen, who would use LDS meeting houses for Birch recruitment meetings. And um, the, David O. McKay and, and Brown and Moyle, the first presidency, they just thought this is just too much, and they urged or demanded that Benson stop doing this. And by 1965, uh, Benson called, or excuse me, President McKay called Elder Benson in, Reed Benson was with him, and he said that you, Elder Benson, are no longer to talk about the Birch Society in public, nor can you visit their functions. And Elder Benson said, well, can I still talk about communism in general conference and at BYU devotionals? And Benson said, you may, but just don't mention the Birch Society. And to the church body, that was a very conflicting moment because on the one hand, he didn't mention the Birch Society after this 1965 meeting, but on the other hand, he's talking about anti-communism, giving the same Birch talking points. And so to the, to the grassroots of the church, they didn't know the difference. So when did he make that famous statement about it, it, you can't be a liberal, a good Mormon and a liberal Democrat? So what was the context of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So Benson had been saying 
uh, I, I tried to find the origins of this, um, and it predates the time that you're thinking of, Peggy. Uh, the famous line is 1974 with this newspaper, the Stalic Tribune, where Benson was interviewed by one of your former colleagues and asked about the being a Democrat. And then he made this, this uh, line for which he got himself into a lot of trouble with the church president at the time, Spencer Kimball. Uh, Benson said that, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said that being a Mormon and a Democrat are wholly incompatible as one lives the church's teachings. In other words, if you're a good Mormon, you live its teachings, you can't be a Democrat because they're socialists. And um, when he gave that, that line to the Salt Lake Tribune in 1974, uh, Spencer Kimball writes in his journal, uh, who was then the church president, President Kimball said, dozens of people contacted me complaining about Elder Benson's remarks. And so Kimball called Benson in to chastise him. And he said, Elder Benson, you have a greater uh, responsibility as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles than you do in partisan politics. Leave those alone. And of course, Benson listened to President Kimball for about five minutes. But um, the, the origins of that comment goes way back to the 1940s. That's the first time where he starts talking about um, the great isms. He talks about fascism, liberalism, and communism, and socialism being incompatible with the gospel. And I might add something that's interesting uh, that I've had discussions with, with a lot of Latter-day Saints recently, which is that President Kimball recognizes that Benson's partisan politics are damaging the church. And what Kimball meant by that was that he's trying to move the church into Northern Europe. This is a region of the world whose people love their socialism. And he, you have a, um, a senior apostle equating socialism with, you know, being satanic, right? It, this is like not the gospel plan. And you get people in Latter-day Saints in Northern Europe who, who don't see that there's a chasm between the two. I can be a good Latter-day Saint in, in Denmark or Sweden and, and love socialism. And so President Kimball is astute enough to realize that his rhetoric is harming the church. And it's the same thing with the civil rights stuff, that you can't move the church into Black Africa, for example, if you're equating Dr. King, this iconic um, figure, with, with communism. And so on both fronts, President Kimball tells Elder Benson to put a sock in it. And um, just to extend this thought one, one point further, so, so President Kimball is one of the, there's like three people that really reign Benson in. President Kimball's one of them. And during his church presidency, um, there was a lot of consternation among Latter-day Saints, at least among liberal Latter-day Saints, that he would politicize the church, that Benson would. And he didn't do that, as most people know. But what they don't know is it's not because he had a change of heart. It's because Kimball, and then um, subsequent to Kimball, Gordon Hinckley had told him we cannot universalize or globalize the church if you're targeting certain groups of people we're trying to reach. And so what President Benson did when he was the church president, he really talked about politics, but he used surrogates to continue his some of his conspiracy views. So... How was his conservatism different than other right-leaning politicians, including, you know, as you said, most church leaders were conservative. Yeah. How, was, how was he different? And, and how did conspiracies play into his, his shaping his politics? Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. Um, so going back to, let's say, the early 60s, 
the, the civil rights movement really becomes a touchstone for this. And in 1964, um, the Republican Party is split on civil rights. Democrats have come around to it with Lyndon Johnson. But uh, Republicans are split on it. So on the one hand, you have Barry Goldwater, who's, who would be the presidential candidate that year, representing the GOP. Uh, Goldwater opposes civil rights. And then you get moderate Republicans like Richard Nixon and um, Nelson Rockefeller, and to your Latter-day Saint audiences, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, they support civil rights. And so Benson, um, none of those folks supported Benson's uh, far-right views, that is, that the civil rights movement had been hijacked by communists. Even Barry Goldwater, who didn't support civil rights, he didn't think it was because they were communists. He didn't call King a communist. Uh, Goldwater thought that if you support civil rights legislation, it will, it will require a federal bureaucracy to enforce it. So Goldwater opposed it on states' rights issues, which is a far different principle than, than Dr. King's a communist. So Benson started to develop these radical views outside of the mainstream uh, conservative party. And that's why in 1968, he decides to run with a segregationist named Strom Thurmond. And, um, and then when that failed, um, he wanted to, he, he sought President McKay's uh, blessing to run with probably the most prominent segregationist in the country at the time, a guy named George Wallace. And both Wallace, who was a Democrat, and Benson, who was a Republican, they both thought their parties were wrong on civil rights. And so uh, Benson joined the American Independent Party for a short period, along with Wallace. And President McKay, of course, rejected um, uh, Wallace and Benson, didn't want Benson to run with Wallace because the church was already under a microscope for its racial teachings in the 60s. And running with a high-profile segregationist who attracted support from the Ku Klux Klan, white citizens councils, and the neo-Nazis, that wasn't going to be a good look for the church. And so McKay wisely uh, told Benson and Wallace that no way is this going to happen. But the point is, is that Benson's views became so radical that he left the mainstream GOP to join a third party. So how were his conspiracy theories uh, passed down to modern Latter-day Saints, like the Bundys and Julie Rowe, and how are they different? I mean, you have you certainly have mentioned um, communism, but was there also apocalyptic themes there too with Benson? And because those are definitely playing out with contemporary conspiracies and how yeah. power is transmitted to the next generation yeah great questions Peggy so um, so in the 1960s with the Cold War into the 50s into the 60s there were a lot of clergymen um, and I say clergymen because it's mostly men as opposed to women but um, there were a lot of clergymen in the 50s and 60s who they, the Cold War has really made them rethink their theology and rethink how they view the end times and the rise of uh, the, the arms race, for example, with nuclear power. And Benson um, was certainly one of those leaders from the Mormon tradition who became really concerned about the end times. And um, if you look at some of the sermons that both Benson and other Mormon apostles gave in the 50s and 60s, I don't think that they were that unique. You know, prepare for the end times, God will come. And then later on, you get some food storage thrown in. But in private, Benson was talking about a different tune. 
And what pushed him over the edge, if I can be just frank, really, what pushed him over the edge in 1968 um, was a uh, civil rights unrest. And he thought that there were black Marxists coming to Salt Lake to murder the first presidency. I mean, it really just riled him up. And in private, he wrote this very long and detailed letter to the first presidency. This was April of 1968, two weeks after Dr. King had died. And people are rioting in the streets because of uh, King's death. And uh, Elder Benson uh, writes the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, actually. And he says that, that the end times are here. We need to arm ourselves. So he talks about arming ourselves with weapons. We need to... Um, a mass food storage, and we need, then he talked about being a spiritual component, that we need to make sure that we've repented of our sins, that God, Jesus is coming. And in the 1970s, uh, Elder Benson started to ramp up this end times rhetoric in a very similar way that evangelicals did. And something that maybe your listeners, um, at least some of those who are familiar with Benson, um, they might not know this, which is that Benson was one of the few Latter-day Saints who actually had association in the 70s with evangelical leaders. Mormons have had a very tenuous relationship with evangelicals over the years. I think it's, it's as good as it's ever been now in the, in the church, um, I believe. But uh, really, Latter-day Saint leaders were isolated for a number of years. And in the 70s, um, with ERA, Latter-day Saints started to come together with some evangelicals and Catholics. But Benson had uh, preached at some of their meetings. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the ministers, a fundamentalist minister named Billy Hargis, he went to his, um, uh, his church, his meeting house, and he gave a sermon on the end times. And boy, if he didn't know any better, it, sounded, it sounds like an evangelical sermon. And what's interesting, they published the sermon in uh, this fundamentalist Christian magazine. And it doesn't say Ezra Taft Benson president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He doesn't identify himself as a Mormon. He just says, Ezra Taft Benson, Salt Lake City. And that's really, it's an extraordinary moment. Um, probably speaks more about the tension that evangelicals felt towards Mormons than Benson's reticence about identifying himself as a high-ranking, you know, Mormon prelate. So anyway, um, uh, there's a lot of this end times rhetoric, and Julie Rowe, one of the persons of prepper fame who claimed to have a series of visions in the early 21st century, um, she took one of his sermons on the end times that was published in the early 1980s, and she posted on her website. And this is one of the, the foundations for some of her views on the end times was Elder Benson's talk on the second coming. In terms of the, um, the other folks that Benson has influenced, the Bundys, for example, um, I think it was, what, 2017, they led a 31-day standoff in Oregon, right? Um, some of us may remember very vividly watching the news, and it was on the news constantly. Well, they were appealing to both Benson, Cleon Skousen, and then also Mormon scripture to justify taking over state and federal lands. And, of course, the LDS Church just recoiled in horror, <laughs> if you will, when journalists asked them, you know, is there anything in the Mormon canon to justify the Bundys taking over federal property? And the church, of course, said, you know, a big emphatic no, because they had been trying to move away from right-wing extremism for a number of years by that point. And the Bundys, of course, you know, didn't read the tea leaves. They didn't really see what was going on in the church. But um, ever since uh, Spencer Kimball's administration, all the way into the 90s with Gordon Hinckley, 
the church has been on one, in my opinion, one strong crusade to move the church from the far right wing of the Republican Party or conservatism, if you will, more center right. And, you know, Mormons today are still um, heavily involved in GOP politics, so people can determine for themselves how successful that's been. But there has been a concerted effort by contemporary Mormon leaders to um, to write some of those right-wing ideas that Benson and Skousen have been teaching for so many years. Matt, quick question, going back to the civil rights movement. Did, did Ezra Taft Benson's views change or moderate at all once the church ended its priesthood temple ban on blacks in 1978? Did that sort of, you know, he obviously was on board with that, at least to some extent, um, gave his blessing to it. Did, did, did that cease to become a boogeyman for him? Well, so at that point, no, the answer is no, Dave. Civil rights, he still thought that they were run by communists and all of that stuff. The, the difference is, is that um, Elder Benson didn't talk about civil rights um, after 1971 because he was told not to. And at that time, just a quick idea here, that at that time, uh, BYU and the church were under siege, if you will, from universities refusing to play BYU. And it was terrible publicity for the church because of the priesthood ban. That was one of them. But also BYU didn't want black uh, kids at the university. They were afraid of interracial marriage. And so BYU was under federal investigation in the late 60s for alleged violations of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because in 1968, they had three African-American students. And so that uh, sent an alarm bell to the, to the government that they were not um, welcoming to African-American students. And so um, Benson had lived through this. He was part of these discussions and he recognized that he could no longer demonize the civil rights movement during that period. And by 1978, he hadn't said anything publicly for a number of years about the civil rights movement because he had been warned by Harold Lee and some other church leaders not to. Okay, a question now, you, you mentioned this briefly. He became church president in 1985. Many people who were familiar with his background and his politics were really fearful that there would he would leave that imprint, that it would be suddenly become uh, church-wide teachings. That didn't seem to happen. Why not? You mean, uh, just to understand the question. Yeah. Why, why did, why did uh, yeah, when he became the church president, he was the top dog. Why, why did he not move the church in that direction toward his politics more? Oh, it seemed like he didn't. Yeah, so you're you're saying really he's the church president; he can do what he wants to do. That's, that, I mean, that's what most people would think. I think. Yeah, that, so. I think, and that's a that's a fair assumption. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I talk about this in great detail about it's a period of many years of how he's reigned in is the word I use. And uh, so there are a number of people in the high church leadership who absolutely oppose him, and it's hard for some Latter Day Saints to understand that. You know, you, we think of, say, Apostle Boyd K. Packer, who's very conservative theologically and politically, but even Boyd P. Packer hated the Burt Society. And just a quick story, in 1989, well, let me back up. One of the, the first general authority that President Benson called was uh, a guy named H. Berlin Anderson, who was a BYU professor and also a member of the Burt Society, and he had written a number of President Benson's sermons which most people don't know, including his most famous sermon um, called The Proper Sphere of Government. It was written by H. Berlin Anderson, this, this Bircher. 
And he also wrote a number of books that Desert Books sold. Anyway, H. Uh, Berlin Anderson, uh, he called Anderson into the, he wanted to make an apostle. And Gordon Hinckley and Tom Monson said, absolutely not. We're not going to have this right wing, no. And uh, there are also some rumors that I can't corroborate that President Benson wanted to call his son Reed Benson and also Cleon Skousen into the Corps of the Twelve. And uh, anyway, so his, his mindset is still very much aligned with right-wing politics, but President Benson's getting vigorous pushback from Hinckley, from Monson, Boyd Packer. And uh, so they called H. Rowan Anderson, um, not as an apostle, they called him into the second quorum of the 70. It's like a concession. H. Verlin Anderson thought he was going to be called into the Quorum of the Twelve. And instead, the concession is, we're going to put you in the second quorum for three years and you're out. And when they did this, they told H. Verlin Anderson, Hinckley told H. Verlin Anderson that um, he said that, look, I'm going to be just frank. We don't want you here. This is not where we want you. But President Benson wants you. We're going to honor it. You are not to talk about government conspiracies, Gadiat and robbers, none of that stuff. <laughs> And when Verlin Anderson uh, left his um, three years later, during his exit interview, which is a fancy term that Mormons use um, when people leave their leadership role, um, Hinckley gave the same counsel to Verlin Anderson during his exit interview three years later. Just because you're no longer in a general authority does not give you permission or license to talk about Gadiant and robbers and conspiracies. Put a lid on it. And then the, the second uh, general authority, another general authority that he calls, uh, Benson calls, is a guy named Malcolm Jepson, who was close friends with Boyd Packer growing up in Brigham City, Utah. And Jepson, uh, his professional career is a physician and is also the physician to the Bensons, Ezra and Flora. And um, Malcolm Jepson tells this great story. I have his journal, so it's a great story. He writes in his journal that he was at his medical clinic in 1989 one day, and his good friend Boyd Packer was just driving around the streets of Salt Lake, and the spirit told him to stop and go into Dr. Jepson's clinic. So he goes into Jepson's clinic and interrupts him as he's with a patient, and of course, Jepson knew it was something urgent, and so he meets with uh, Elder Packer, Apostle Packer, and Packer says, you are not to join the John Birch Society. You'll know why soon enough. And Jepson says, I had no intention to. Um, he didn't, Jepson didn't say in his journal that Benson was pushing him to do it. But that's the, the, the implication that one can make. And so Packer says, don't do it. You'll know soon why soon enough. A week later, they called Jepson in as the dead authority. And of course, you know, it would have been a disqualifying factor if he had joined the Burt Society. So there's tremendous pushback. Um, one last story that I think is really instructive here is that one of the first things that Benson did when he was called as, a, as church president, when he was ordained, is that he called the Burt Society and he said, hey, look, can you send me, uh, uh, send my counselors, Gordon Hinckley, Tom Monson, and my secretary, Arthur Haycock, can, they, can you send them Birch literature and bill me? Put it on my tab, bill me. And Hinckley, Monson, and Haycock, we don't want this garbage. They, they, they said that pretty quickly. We don't want this stuff, don't send it to us. And um, the Birch Society president, who's now emeritus, but he knew Benson well. And when um, L, uh, President Benson was in his office one day, the Birch Society president, a man named John McManus, visited uh, President Benson in his Salt Lake offices. 
And he never could understand why he always got a chilly response from people within the church administration building. Not from President Benson, who loved him and wanted to see him, but those around him just, it was like an icicle when you walked in. And when I interviewed McManus, who was enormously helpful in this book in facilitating Benson's private papers with Robert Welch, and also just his own reminiscences of his dealings with President Benson, he said, I never could understand why they were so basically rude to me. He said, do you know the answer? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) They're trying to get away from the Bird Society. They're trying to untether that connection. So when people say that President Benson, you know, left politics behind when he was a church president, um, I always say, uh, right facts, but wrong conclusions. It's not because he had a change of heart. It's because there were so many people around him, including these senior members of the Quorum of the Twelve, like Hinckley, Monson, and Packer, who, who just said, look, this is not where the church needs to be. We've got to grow the church. We've got this great vision, and partisan politics will hold us back. So, Matt, um, you might not be able to answer this definitively, but my guess is you can at least give your impression. How might an Ezra Taft Benson fit in today's political climate? Wow. I think I have to go now, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Would he be right at home or (laughs) no? Well, it's it's a complicated question because... On the one hand, of course, he spent his entire adult life pushing back on Russians. The Russians, of all the communists he always talked about, it was always the Russians. It wasn't the Chinese, it wasn't the Bulgarians, it was the Russians. So, so Benson had a, a tremendous, a profound antipathy for the Russian government. And not the Russian people so much, but the Russian government. And so he would be absolutely horrified with our intelligence agencies indicating that there's Russian, Russian meddling in our, our election. That, that would just send Pre- Elder Benson or President Benson over the edge. On the other hand, one can't imagine that he would bolt to the Democratic Party and support you know, a party that he called communist his entire adult life. That just seems beyond the pale. So I think the best answer I can give is um, when Benson's own party became uncomfortable for him in the 60s and into the 70s, he joined a third party movement. And I would, I would see him doing something similar today. He would leave the GOP, um, not necessarily some of the core principles for which they stand, but he would leave the GOP because of the current leader. And he would follow a person that he thought was moral. When Benson always talked about Latter-day Saints running for office, the word he used, and he actually used women too, oddly enough, men and women. And I say oddly enough, because in those days, um, Benson wasn't known for gender inclusivity. But he, he, he talked about, at one point, he gave a sermon, he talked about good men and women who run for office. They need to be moral and ethical. These are the adjectives that he used to describe good men and women. Um, and so I can't imagine that he would support the current president giving his moral failings. And so my, my sense is, is that Benson would have aligned himself with a third party uh, candidate that he would have thrown his weight behind. Interesting. I'm going to go back to another question, and, and maybe we'll move this up higher. But So Benson's, during his presidency, he got sick at the end pretty much and was pretty much not doing it. Hinckley was running the church. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley pretty much was running the church then. Um, did, did Benson give any, Hinckley any directions, or did Hinckley pretty much just run the show and was able to moderate the church? Well, 
the the problem is is that Benson's Benson's only in good decent health for a short period during his church presidency, and by the late '80s, he really starts to decline, and he has moments of lucidity. Um, but when you get to the late '80s and into the early '90s, he's really not functioning um, as much as the church would have hoped. And um, this is part of the problem with Benson's grandson, um, Steve Benson, who was very vocal in the early 90s about exposing his grandfather for running the church. He's not running the church, he said. How could you think he's running the church and signing missionary letters? And he's not. He's got feeding tubes up his nose. He can't even talk. And so that was kind of a big brouhaha. And I think the church learned from that, to be honest. Um, And I think that President uh, Gordon Hinckley and Tom Monson, I think that there were... um, they were accused by some right wingers in the early nineties of usurping president Benson's authority. And these are right wingers who were the target of excommunication from, um, from Hinckley and Monson. And it filtered down to some of the mid-level general authorities. And of course, mid-level general authorities don't do this on their own. They're following their orders from on high. Well, some of these Latter-day Saints who were targeted, uh, these are survivalists, birchers, and some of these folks, um, they, they rightfully concluded that Hinckley was the one behind it. And that's true. He was. And they also said that he had usurped President Benson's authority. And that's an interesting word because President Benson is not running the church. And Hinckley's doing what he thinks is best for the church. And Hinckley is trying to get President Benson's input insofar as he is lucid. The problem is he's not lucid. And now the power then devolves to President Hinckley and Monson and the rest of the 12. And so it was pretty clear um, in Hinckley's life and also when he was Benson's counselor that Hinckley did not share Benson's ideological attachments. He was not a partisan. He was a moderate Republican, but he was not far right wing. And Hinckley also said something that, that's really fascinating to me. In 1985, he gave a first counselor, Hinckley gave a general conference sermon in which he said that we won't allow our political considerations to dull our senses to help people who are going hungry. And what he meant by that was, it's okay to get government assistance if you need it. And by 1990, uh, President uh, Hinckley will oversee a revision of the church welfare handbook in which it says very specifically that it's okay to receive government assistance. Now, one can imagine that if Benson were lucid during that moment, that he would have allowed this to happen. Not even close, but this was all Hinckley's doing. And and then the last point I'll make is, is that it's no secret or no surprise rather that President Hinckley had reached out to the black community um, just after President Benson had died. And so in 1998, four years after Benson had died, Hinckley accepted an invitation to speak at one of the regional NAACP meetings in Salt Lake. Now, that's really a significant watershed moment um, because this is the first time a leader will talk to this, the NAACP, this black interest group. And it's the same group that Elder Benson and Cleon Skousen had demonized as being communist from the 60s. And so Hinckley is trying to make it right with the black community. And I frequently tell Latter-day Saints that um, Russell Nelson's doing great things today as church president, meeting with the NAACP, but that never would have happened had it not been for Gordon Hinckley making that overture in 1998. And make no mistake, the black community, um, Janetta Williams, for example, the president of the NAACP, 
whom I've worked with over the years in some of my research, she recognized what a transformative moment that was to have an LDS church president speak at their, their conference. And I might add one other thing, is that when uh, Hinckley spoke at that conference in 1998, um, uh, there was an African-American man, Darius Gray, he's been on your show, I think, before. He's well-known in Utah. Uh, Darius is a friend of mine, and he uh, was sitting next to a general authority, and he whispered to the general authority while he was listening to President Hinckley speak. He whispered to the general authority, and he said, why, do, why don't we support the Martin Luther King holiday? Why? It's just giving us bad publicity. Why? And when he said that in 1998, uh, Utah was one of the last states in the country to not support the MLK holiday. They called it you know, Human Rights Day. And the general authority just turned to Darius and just basically said, you know, good question. I'll take it up with President Hinckley. And I don't want to give President Hinckley all the credit for the MLK holiday because that would not be correct. There were so many men and women working behind the scenes. And, uh, but certainly having Hinckley's support, the uh, Utah's support for this holiday was instrumental. Interesting. Well, the name of the book, again, is Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right. Matthew Harris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure. And stay safe, okay? Thank you, you too. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Sarah Weber. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormonland. Land. 